One of the first experiences I had with the collegiate was when I walked into Wesley Hall and it smelled old and it has this like old library kind of scent to it. Welcome to Hallowed Halls, a podcast about the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. Episode three, Reflecting the City. Walking in to Wesley Hall, I felt like I was in a castle, literally. I would never have been where I am today if it, it were not for the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. Never. It changed my life completely. I, I was so grateful and remain so grateful that it gave me that grounding and that start. I've certainly left part of my heart at, at, in Wesley Hall. The Collegiate needs to be what the world is, but just within the walls of Wesley Hall. That's what the Collegiate needs to be. The Collegiate does reflect the city and the society that it's in. And I'm sure that's always been the case. You have to take a pause here and and think, you know, that was 1968, 69. And then fast forward to uh, 1995 through to 1997. And I'm spending 18 months of my life trying to save the Winnipeg Jets from leaving Winnipeg. And uh, who is all involved? Lloyd Axworthy is the Western Regional Minister, so the federal government. Barry Shankaro is uh, the lead owner of the Jets. I'm the mayor of the city. And in a million years, would you ever have believed that after having coffee and lunch and everything in Tony's Canteen at the University of Winnipeg Collegiate, here we are major leaders in our country and our city and our, our business community uh, dealing with one of the most significant issues in our city's history. All right, let's rewind a second. That's Susan Thompson, former mayor of Winnipeg, and you guessed it, graduate of the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. And she attended the school at around the time that it became known as the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. As we learned in the last episode, the school became United College Collegiate in 1938. And that school received its charter to become the University of Winnipeg in 1967. On this episode, we'll learn about the character and climate of the school during the 60s and 70s, and the ways that it reflected the broader social and political changes in the world around it. So let's get back to Susan Thompson, back to the beginning, decades before she was mayor of Winnipeg and trying to save the Jets. I uh, wound up at the Collegiate, first and foremost, because I was a high school dropout from St. James Collegiate. And what I mean by that was I failed three out of five subjects, and that's a pretty good definition of a high school dropout. And uh, it didn't phase me in the least, because by the time I got to grade 12 at St. James Collegiate, I was bored. I could have cared less uh, about school. The only thing I cared about were parties and the school dances and fashion and how popular I was and nothing of any substance. So I went to my prom with this really good looking guy and had a wonderful time. And then it came to the end of June and my father said, and what do you think you'll be doing now? And I thought, oh, well, he said, well, you better go out and get a job because you're certainly not going to be at home during the summer. So that's what Susan did. She got a job working in the library at the University of Winnipeg, despite her parents' constant encouragement for her to go back and finish high school. Why would I want to go to school? I had all the perks of... Uh, being in uh, Tony's Canteen and the dances and all the social life and I didn't have to study. So 
I went, no, I'm, I'm going to work, which is, is what I did. But at the end of that uh, first year of working, I realized at that wage, I could never afford me. I was going nowhere fast. It was around that time that she learned about the collegiate and that she could have the best of both worlds, remaining on the university campus with all its perks and going back to finish high school. So she went to the university's head librarian and asked if she could continue working evenings and weekends to pay for her collegiate tuition. And uh, that's how I wound up at the collegiate. Familiar? It should be. It's been here for a long time, almost a hundred years to be exact. There have been changes, of course, for as Winnipeg grew, so grew its downtown university, spreading first along the ground and, more recently, stretching upwards. It's as bustling as ever with students of all ages. This is a film produced by the Collegiate around the time Susan was at the school. It highlights the school's unique position on the university campus, its athletic programs, performing arts programs, and international student body. It also praises the school's academics and faculty, and it features a face familiar to generations of collegiate students, and a name that should be familiar to listeners of this podcast, Miss Evelyn Mills, the math teacher who Richard Scott and Jim McDonald remembered on the last episode. Miss Mills also left an impression on Susan. She was tiny, and she was short, and I swear to God, I don't think she ever aged. I think she just always looked the same. You knew that the moment that she started to talk, you'd better be listening. You also knew when she interviewed all of us in those days. So she interviewed me. And uh, Miss Thompson, uh, it says here that you got uh, the grade of 11 on your grade 12 math exam. How did you accomplish that? <laughs> well, you can just imagine, I just withered in front of her and I said, well, I believe it's because I spelt my name right. And she looked at me and she said, well, I can assure you, you will get at least 70 out of 100 in my class. And she said, and you know how you're gonna do that? And I said, no. And she said, cause you're gonna come to my after four o'clock classes on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays until you do. <laughs> yes, I got it. And of course, by Christmas, I had 71. And uh, I didn't have to go to the Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday classes anymore. But imagine going from being told you were never going to pass to uh, a minimum grade of 71 out of 100 and really getting it. Hmm, pretty good. Susan credits Miss Mills and other teachers at the Collegiate for believing in her and encouraging her to strive for better grades. I would never have been where I am today if it, it were not for the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. Never. But apart from improving her math skills, the Collegiate would be formative for Susan in other ways, too. It was where she was introduced to new social and political ideas. You know, we were the late 60s, uh, you know, the Kennedy era. It was uh, a time of unbelievable opportunity, seriously, huge opportunity. It was liberal activism time. It was uh, all, so many various civil rights. It was uh, exciting, great belief in the, the future. You know, the, the old saying, the world was your oyster. It was a dynamic time and a time of making a difference. 
And not only were the students reflecting the greater socio-political circumstances of the time, but so was the university itself, in its policies and in architecture that reflected these policies. In the 70s, Centennial Hall was the important, fantastic, wonderful, exciting building. And also the symbolism of that building was about a democratic, open education system, which is what the University of Winnipeg um, made itself in the 70s. This is what it wanted to be and what it continues to be. Like we really work on this idea of open access, everybody's welcome. We still try to invite the community in. The uh, phrase in 1969 and 1970 is the city is our campus. So this idea that we go to the city, but the city comes to us. That's Serena Kashavji, history professor at the University of Winnipeg. We heard from her in episode one, discussing the architecture of Wesley Hall. But here she's talking about Centennial Hall, the largest building on campus, and a building that collegiate students who have attended the school since the 70s know well. In some ways, it's the main thoroughfare through the university campus and houses classrooms and offices, as well as the cafeteria and library on its upper floors. While we may take the building for granted today, Professor Kashavji says that Centennial Hall was revolutionary when it was built in the 70s. As we kind of came out of World War II and went into sort of a, an economic boom, more and more people wanted to go to university. You know, especially uh, soldiers that had been away, um, they were ready to come back. And so uh, we, we had these very large populations of kids pouring in. And, you know, Bryce Hall was built, Manitoba Hall was built, Riddell Hall was built, and it wasn't enough. The university was faced with a few different options. Buy extra land, which was expensive and slow, build a tall skyscraper on the small plot of land between the existing buildings on campus, which no one really wanted to do on a liberal arts campus, or come up with some different, better, more forward-thinking ideas. And so it was this young buck, I'm going to call him, 26-year-old architecture student from the University of Manitoba who had um, just come back from a year in um, the UK where he'd been working with a very, very famous firm, the firm who had done the Sydney Opera House and who were about to do the Georges Pompidou Centre in Paris. And he came back with these radical ideas and apparently he just made a little sketch and he brought it to the team that was looking into the new building and that was the winner and that was Centennial Hall. Lewis Morris is the architect and he describes it as a skyscraper on its side. So it's 80% of our campus is this one building, Centennial Hall, and it really is, it looks like a skyscraper, I mean it's a steel and glass structure, but it's long and horizontal as opposed to high and vertical. And it was so inexpensive to build because they didn't have to shut down any part of the campus. It's an infill building. It attaches to all the buildings that were already here. It filled in a kind of boring space. If you've ever seen images of the campus before, it was uh, a very dead green space with not very many trees and a, you know, a few okay buildings. But it was a little bit mundane in the middle. And then we got this very dynamic, incredibly optimistic, exciting building. And I've been told by many people that they came to the University of Winnipeg in the 1970s because of this building and because of what it represented. In some ways, Professor Kashavji says Centennial Hall represents the opposite of the stone-clad, ivory tower design of Wesley Hall. 
Centennial Hall as a building because of all the glass and it used to have super graphics all throughout so you would be pulled in by the color you were invited in you were welcomed in um, it used to have multiple layers where you could um, enter the building at different layers and you just walk in some of that's changed now because of different security um, reasons but still it, it is a it is an open more welcoming building so had you entered this building in 1972 the super graphics would you would have told you that you go right up to the fourth floor if you want to eat or get books so and they were open plan spaces and the profs ate with the students you know that's not necessarily the, the you know the older tradition would have been a separate place for professors to eat we all ate in the same area we all use the same library and they are that floor is the student floor actually that was kind of the I guess the study and fun floor while students and professors may have been mingling in the cafeteria after Centennial Hall was built at the collegiate Generations of students have treasured a different place for eating and socializing. Tony's. And to break the bleakness of midwinter, it's dancing at dawn in Tony's cafeteria. What a way to start a day. It's come up with nearly every person I've spoken with for this podcast, including Susan Thompson. Well, Tony's was the hub. It was the hub for food, and it was run by Mr. and Mrs. Kazira, and, uh, and, and they ran the place. You were always welcomed in, and, and Mrs. Kazira got the most delicious cinnamon buns from Jeannie's Bakery, and then, of course, at lunch there was soup and sandwiches and hot dogs, and, and uh, during my time, we all had our tables. That was really fascinating. My girlfriends and I had one table and then at another table was, you know, just a whole bunch of the Axworthy guys. When Susan Thompson talks about the Axworthy guys, she's referring to a group of influential Canadian political, business and community leaders who all attended the University of Winnipeg in the 1960s, including Lloyd Axworthy, who had a long political career in the Liberal Party including as Minister of Foreign Affairs in the late 1990s, before serving as President of the University of Winnipeg between 2004 and 2014. Over at another table was uh, Barry Shankaro and his friends, who uh, Barry went on to be one of the uh, owners of the Jets, the lead owner of the Winnipeg Jets. And uh, then at another table was Nick Turnett, who was the uh, perennial activist all the way until the day he passed, but uh, was always uh, out there fighting the establishment. At, at one point I remember uh, sitting there, and this is absolutely uncanny, sitting there while Tom Axworthy and Phil Reese and a few of the others were trying to figure out what year would Lloyd run for Prime Minister. Well, think about that. You know, it's like 1968. You've just come through Canada's 100th birthday. And then you're sitting at a table where these guys are talking about when Lloyd was, when would he run for prime minister? So it was the hub. It was the, the gathering place, the meeting place, the uh, experiencing ideas and the forming of friendships. In Susan's case, this meant forming friendships that would last for decades and would later come up during her two terms as mayor, including in that moment Susan referred to at the top of the episode 
when she was struggling to save the Winnipeg Jets. Don't underestimate who you're ever sitting beside. You know, when, when you're in class, you should look to your left and you should look to your right and front and behind. And you should remember who you're sitting beside because you never know where they're going to be in your life in the future. The collegiate does reflect the city and the society that it's in. And I'm sure that's always been the case. I'm sure that was the case in the 1940s when my mother went there. It was certainly the case in 1970 when I went there. And I'm sure that it's been, it's been that, way, that way after. My name is Dan Diamond. I went to grade 12 at the University of Winnipeg Collegiate in 1970-71. And in the years that followed, I became the National Hockey League's book publisher and produced the Bible of Hockey, a statistical annual called the NHL Official Guide and Record Book, and in addition to other books besides. And my capacity to do that, the seeds for it were definitely planted, watered, and, and harvested at the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. Like Susan, Dan ended up at the Collegiate because of a not-so-stellar record at his previous school. My uh, uh, high school career up to that point had been what I think you could favorably call checkered. I had been at Grant Park from grade 7 through grade 11. And at the end of, at the end of grade 11, for reasons that, that <laughs> are not germane to this conversation, uh, on the last day of school when the yearbooks were passed out, and I was the yearbook editor, the vice principal of the school, who was a bit of a bully, came up to me, grabbed me hard by the upper arm and said, Diamond, if you come back here next year, I'm going to get you personally. To which I said to myself, okay, I think the University of Winnipeg Collegiate is starting to look pretty good. Kidding aside, though, I looked forward to the idea of getting into uh, more of a university setup with, uh, from what I had heard about the collegiate, you know, uh, smaller classes, a different relationship with the teachers, and, you know, a belief that students could be responsible for looking after them, you know, themselves and getting, and getting their job done. I had to kind of promise my parents that I would work hard and get good marks because I was always one of those kids who, who, without working hard, could do a little better than okay. So I went there prepared to sort of turn it on and did. He remembers his first day at the Collegiate, walking into Wesley Hall, a building he had admired for years. We were assembled in the big theater, the big, the big hall, the, the room that was uh, big enough to hold everybody. And it had a balcony. I remember being in the balcony and looking down. It was neat to see international students. They were not um, part of my previous high school experience. Um, and there were definitely kids there from the Commonwealth countries. And, you know, we, there was the process of, of finding your classes, meeting your teachers, seeing who you were with, and beginning to navigate all those complexities of being in grade 12. And even then there were, you know, there were customs that were explained to us by the staff that seemed like weird and outmoded uh, um, and were never actually used. There was, at the bottom of the staircase, uh, right beside the water fountain, there was a bulletin board on the wall that was divided up into by the letters of the alphabet and had hooks sticking out of it. And it was called the Billy Doo. 
B-I-L-L-Y-D-O-O, which of course is a anglicization of French, Billy Do, like romance note, you know, a soft ticket. And and so if you wanted to write a message to another student, you would write it on a piece of paper, you would fold it in half, you would put it over one of the hooks with their name on it, you know, so if it was somebody whose last name began with an, an S, you would put it on the S hooks. And, and no one used that, right? I... <laughs> They explained to us how it worked and all that, and they'd been there forever, and this is what you did, and like no one used it. <laughs> but it was still there. So it's not there now. I know that. It wasn't, it's not there now, but, but I don't know when it disappeared. But, so it was a funny old place right from the get-go. After getting used to the school's odd customs, Dan quickly reprised his role from his previous school and became the editor of the Collegiate Yearbook. It came to me. So there I was, you know, 16, with a room on the fourth floor in the turret of Wesley Hall with a lock on the door and I had the key. A potent, <laughs> a potent thing for a kid to have. And, and the room was furnished with, um, you know, hand-me-down and cast-off, you know, university stuff. You know, there was a desk that had to be as old as the building, a little, little desk, and then a couple big stuffed armchairs and uh, a table or two. And that was... Uh, that was Yearbook Central. And, and there we made a decision, you know, a couple, and the rest of the staff was like people volunteered to be on it. And we made a decision that it was going to be a, um, a yearbook like n- none other, a kind of avant-garde high school yearbook in the way it used student art and it published a bit of poetry. And, 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 but the big thing was, would there be write-ups for the graduates? And uh, I always hated those, hated the write-ups. And so we put it to the student body. We actually had a, uh, a secret ballot plebiscite on whether there would be write-ups. I was arguing for no one has a write-up, that we use the space to make the pictures bigger, and we have artwork and photography and very more things in it. So, so it came down to the vote, and the vote was, it came down to a dead tie. But I reported that it was a narrow win for no write-ups, and there were no write-ups. Confession, confession. It has very few words in it. It doesn't do mostly with images. We had access to some color, you know, so there were there was some colored artwork and what have you. Yeah, so it's 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 a pretty cool high school yearbook, that's for sure. Of course, being a, such a small student body, it had a, a grand press run of 325 copies, right? Of which I have two. I think that the collegiate at that time and probably still today attracts kids from a creative background and whose families might encourage them or at least not discourage them from doing something that's a little bit out of the ordinary. So I think that that's why you'd get uh, a certain percentage of kids there who would describe themselves as socially progressive. I think that that creates the situation that makes it more likely that the student body and the student culture reflects what's going on, that people are aware. While Susan Thompson may be counted among the socially and politically engaged students that Dan describes, she actually didn't get turned on to politics while at the collegiate. One campaign spent canvassing for Lloyd Axworthy during one of his first political campaigns cured Susan of any political desires, for a few decades at least. Well, I became mayor in 1992, but it was the result of a calling, and it was the most absurd experience I'd ever had in my entire life. It was two o'clock in the morning and it was it was just like one of those lightning bolt moments that uh, you can get in life and I 
it, it woke me out of a, an absolute deep sleep and I just couldn't process what had just happened to me. And I went back to sleep and when I woke up in the morning, it was quite something because I knew it to be true. I knew it was true. And so I went into work and I had 22 staff at the time and I gathered them all together and this was in October of 1982 and I said, I don't know how and I don't know when, but I just want all of you to know that someday I'm going to be the mayor of Winnipeg. And 22 sets of eyes looked back at me like I was crazy. Susan served two terms as mayor, deciding not to run for a third term. After that, she continued to serve in important roles, including as Canada's general consul in Minneapolis and later in a role that brought her back to the University of Winnipeg as the founding president and CEO of the University of Winnipeg Foundation. The collegiate, the university, the library, the University of Winnipeg Foundation. Oh, it's, it's followed me and I've followed it all the way through my life. Jim McDonald and Jim Richardson had for, what did he say, 30 years been trying to uh, get a, a whole fundraising arm going and it never got going and anyway just due to a set of circumstances I was still in my diplomatic appointment in the United States of America but very clearly realizing that I wasn't going to get a second political appointment so I, I needed a job back in Winnipeg. It was around that time that she was asked by then Chancellor of the University of Winnipeg Sandy Riley who was also a longtime friend and colleague of Susan's to return to the university to help them start the foundation. She recruited a number of successful graduates of the university and the collegiate, including Jim McDonald, who we heard from on the last episode, to sit on the foundation's first board. And the first item on the agenda was fundraising. So we go into our first board meeting, okay, that's fine. And then we have another one scheduled for September, so that's fine, so we're going through the whole meeting. And then all of a sudden, Jim McDonald says, Mr. Chairman. And I turned to Sandy and I said, here it comes, get ready. He stood up and he said, Mr. Chairman, I would like to announce my gift of $1 million personally to the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. The University of Winnipeg had never had a million dollar gift and the Collegiate had never ever had a million dollar gift. In 2018, I had to return to Winnipeg for a family funeral and um, took the bus in from the airport and, and got off at uh, behind basically, uh, you know, a block from the university deliberately to walk into the campus from the north end, from Ellis, and make my way the length of it. My main objective, of course, was to get back to Wesley Hall and then explore it from top to bottom to look for the Billy Doo, which is no longer there to look for the locker rooms, which, which, while there are locker rooms, they are not in the same place. And then to uh, climb the stairs and see all of the sort of restored stained glass windows and fancy banisters and all that, which were not there when, when I was there. But anyway, to make my way up to the fourth floor and look for the yearbook office, which is now a prof's office, but you know, just to get a feel for the place and look at the kids. And, and, and I was comforted by what I saw. I certainly wasn't hoping to see my 1970 high school uh, frozen in amber or anything like that. I wanted to see uh, you know, an updated version and definitely did.
That was episode three of Hallowed Halls. On this episode, we heard from Susan Thompson, mayor of Winnipeg from 1992 to 1998, Serena Kashavji, associate professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, and Dan Diamond, former publisher for the NHL, including the Bible of Hockey. The music you heard on this episode is by Lee Rosevere. For links to all the songs featured on this episode, and to hear more from Lee Rosevere, check out the show notes. This podcast is produced by me, Isaac Werman, with the support from Dean Kevin Clace and Associate Dean Bonnie Talbot of the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. We acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 1 territory, ancestral lands of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We also acknowledge that our water is sourced from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation. Tune into the next episode of this podcast, where we'll hear from some students who traveled a long way to attend the Collegiate, and we'll learn about one of the Collegiate's most beloved teachers. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing this podcast. Talk to you next time.